we're, we're in the, the part of our time together where we, uh, we open the Bible and, and we look at what God has written in it. Um, we don't always say this. Sometimes we just take it as an assumption. But we believe that this book, the Bible, these collection of 66 books, is, is God wrote these by, by His Holy Spirit through human authors. And we can look in here and find truth. And we can read it and understand it for ourselves. We don't need someone else to read it and to, to explain it. Now, I stand at the front. Sometimes someone else, Paul, stood at the front on, on occasion. My dad does as well. And we, we, we've, we study and we teach it. But you have the ability to read it and to say, I'm not sure that you read that correctly. You, you, you can call me out on that. If that because we don't, we, don't, we don't think that you need someone else to read it for you. you God speaks here and you can read it. He, he wrote it so that you can understand who he is. And so that's one of the reasons why on a Sunday morning, churches across the world stand up and hopefully they open the Bible. <laughs> Sometimes they stand up and they don't open the Bible and they talk. But we open the Bible together and we look at it and we say, what does the Lord have for us from his word this morning? And so we have been looking at the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 specifically, and looking at what does faith lived out look like. Uh, and we've, been, we've spent a lot of time flipping backwards to Genesis. And this week, we're going to look at the life of Moses. And so we're no longer flipping back to the book of Genesis, but back to the book of Exodus, which is the second book in your Old Testament, Genesis and then Exodus. Uh, we're going to look at the life of Moses. So if I can just read those few verses from Hebrews chapter 11 in verse 23 through 28. Hebrews 11 verses 23 through 28. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." And by faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. There's been several times throughout Hebrews chapter 11 when we've sort of thought, that's interesting that the writer picked out that moment of faith rather than these more obvious ones. But the reality is that the, the, the writer of the book of Hebrews, he, he, he looked at their lives and he said, these are the moments of faith. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he said, these are the moments. And so these are the moments in Moses' life, four moments, four moments, and, I, and, I, and I've tried to categorize them if I can in your notes there, four moments from the life of Moses. The first one is this idea that faith, Moses' faith doesn't fear Egypt's power. We get to look just briefly at Moses' parents. 
you get extra points if you remember their names. I don't think I put them in the notes. A little bit of Bible trivia. Faith doesn't desire Egypt's success. Faith isn't swayed by Egypt's opinion. And faith doesn't share Egypt's fate. So four moments in Moses' life. And I just want to have a couple of thoughts for you from each one uh, as we walk through. But you'll notice that that Egypt features heavily in Moses' life in in this passage from Hebrews chapter 11. Egypt is central there. And Egypt in the Bible, in the New Testament, represents something for us as believers as well. Egypt represents the power and the slavery of sin and death and the world's systems, if you will, uh, which ultimately the, the world, its kingdoms, its kings, they ultimately end up against Jesus in Revelation. If you read Revelation, they end up on the side of sin and death in the fight. And so Egypt and later Babylon comes to represent that in a much bigger fashion, but Egypt represents the the power and the slavery in particular of those things. And so faith, I've titled this this message, Faith in Egypt. Uh, And in a sense, we still all, we live in Egypt. It's the world we live in. And so what does faith look like? And we get that picture from Moses. So uh, let's just start off with a little bit of context. If we look at verse 23, we get the beginning of Moses' life. I'm going to have some people read some scriptures if you're up for it, if you have your phone or your Bible out. Um, We're just going to do a little context. Verse 23 says, Moses, when he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months. For two reasons. Because they saw that he was beautiful and they did not fear the, the Pharaoh's edict. So would, would someone have turned in their Bibles to Exodus and chapter 1? Exodus chapter 1 and verses 8 through 10. Yeah, and then don't, don't read it yet. And then someone else with uh, Exodus chapter 1 verse 22 through chapter 2 verse 2. So Exodus one twenty-two through chapter 2 verse 2. And hang on to those for just a second. So if you remember last week, we looked at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And Joseph is the, 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 patri- the, the, the f- final patriarch, if you will, one of Jacob's 10, one, sorry, the, one of Jacob's 12 sons, thank you, uh, who, who we get in Genesis chapter 50. He ends the book of Genesis, and we get then to Exodus chapter 1. And in Exodus chapter 1, the writer says, After a time, the Pharaoh who knew Joseph, he died, who was favorable towards Joseph and his family. He died, and a new Pharaoh arose who did not like the Israelites, who feared them. And that's where we get to Exodus chapter 1. Rensko, would you read those verses for us? So the new Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, who did not, he didn't like Joseph's family, had no regard for them. He says, these people are outnumbering us. Where did, where did they come from? I don't, we don't want them around. What if they overpower us? Ha, we're going to be clever and sneaky and we're going to, we're going to use them. It's manpower. We can use them. And so he enslaves them and they built 
some rather large things in Egypt that you might be familiar with. <laughs> but also along the way, he said, actually, we need to stop them multiplying, having so many children. And so he gave the order that all newborn babies were to be thrown into the river, cast into the river to die, male babies. And they didn't listen. It didn't actually work. So he told the midwives, the Jewish midwives, he said, right, if it's a male baby, you guys have to kill the midwives. And the midwives didn't do it either. And he called them back and he said, why aren't you doing it? And they said, well, the Jewish women, they give birth so quickly that by the time we arrive, they've already given birth. And we, we can't stop them. It's an interesting thought process about who has a right to know the truth and who doesn't, who forfeits their right to know the truth when they are on the side of evil. But that's a different conversation for another day. And so then we pick up in chapter 1 and verse 22, best. So then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to a Hebrew, you shall cast into the Nile, for you shall let every daughter live. And you see, now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And so it's in this context when Pharaoh said, well, the midwives aren't doing the job. So just anyone, if you find a Hebrew with a newborn baby boy, cast them into the river. And he makes it, and that's his edict that in Hebrews chapter 11, the author talks about. And it is in this context. Anyone know the names of Moses' parents? Jochebed was the mother and the father was? Amram. In, uh, you've got the reference there and. Exodus 6, verse 20, it talks about both of them. They're mentioned in two other places, I think, as well, but uh, individually. But it's in this context that Amram and Jochebed, or Jochebed, that they, they gave birth to a little boy, and, and Hebrews tells us that they saw that the baby was beautiful. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen, before he's martyred, is running through the, the, the history of Israel, he says that the child was beautiful in God's eyes, not just the parents. It was probably both. Yeah? And, and they decide to hide the child for as long as they could, three months. And when they could no longer hide the baby Moses, mother made a little basket of reeds sealed with bitumen and put the baby in there and they put him in the river in a safe way. We don't know how much she thought he's going to float down and somebody will find him, but the author, the author of Hebrews says it was an act of faith that they didn't kill him, that they disobeyed the king's edict. It was an act of faith. And faith doesn't fear Egypt's power, is that first thought. And I, we're going to talk about parenting in the middle of that, because actually parenting in our world today, we are confronted with the world's power and authority. And we're, we're going to get into that in just a second. But this idea that faith doesn't fear Egypt's power. Moses' parents didn't fear Pharaoh's edict, his order, his law that he made. They didn't fear it. Rather, they recognized two things. They recognized two things. The first thing that they recognized was God's goodness. It says that they saw that the child was beautiful. And again, in Acts chapter 7, it says, God, in God's eyes, the baby was beautiful, a handsome child. 
just a couple of thoughts about God's goodness in parenting for you just a second. The first is just some of you are, I'm in this situation, but some of us are in the middle of parenting with young children. And it was just on my heart this morning to remind you that children are a gift from the Lord. I promise. I say that to my own wife. Our children are a gift from the Lord. All the time. (laughs) Even when it doesn't feel like it. Yeah, children are a good gift. Psalm 127 says that children are a reward from the Lord. Let me just read that just just quickly because it's a good verse. Psalm 127 127 verse 3. I've gone too far. Now I've gone too back too far. 127. There we go. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame. Yeah, children are a gift, a reward, a blessing from the Lord. And especially in those early years, it's good to remember that. Is it worth remembering that in later years as well? Yeah, yeah children are a gift from the Lord. And grandchildren, and my, my grandmother is with us this morning, and great-grandchildren are a gift from the Lord as well. Children are a gift from the Lord. But let me inverse that as well. That we've, we all have parents. Yeah? We all have parents. And if you had parents who were godly or who imparted some expression of, of faith in Jesus to you, they were, their godly parents are a blessing as well. Now, most of us had parents who didn't impart those things perfectly. Does anyone have perfect parents here? No? Perfect parents. Perfect. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, don't th- I don't think any of us have perfect parents. And so actually for all of us, there's a process of, of, of trying to figure out what did we get from our parents that was good and what did we get that wasn't so good. And can I suggest to you that actually it's a really key process of growing with Jesus that we need to own the bad things our parents gave us. They become part of us. We, you could spend all of your life blaming your parents for the way you are. Yeah? And you spend so much time blaming your parents and saying, oh, it's not my fault that Jesus doesn't actually get to, you don't let him change those things in you. So we need to own the things, the, 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 the difficult things. And sometimes those are difficult things in faith as well. Yeah. And we can bless the Lord for the good things that our parents gave us, particularly in the area of faith. Yeah. What are those? What were, think about your parents just for a second. What were, the, what were the good things that they passed down, especially if there were things about faith? You received things from your parents. What are the things that you need to own that your parents passed down? And you think about that with your children as well. What are the things that you're passing down? That, 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 that thought process about what our parents passed down to us make, ought to make us very cognizant Uh, very aware of what we're passing down to our children and that it is a mixed bag. 
And it ought to lead us to be on the floor, on our knees, in prayer for our children. Yeah? They recognized God's goodness in giving them a child, and God gave Moses good parents as well, godly parents. The second thing that I notice in Moses, they saw that the child was beautiful, and they weren't afraid of the, of the king's edict, of his, of his law that he made about casting male children into the water. They didn't fear his edict. Uh, I said earlier that, that parenting in our world today is, is one of those prime areas where we're confronted with the world's, Egypt's, sin's power, its authority. And it's... It, you might have noticed in our country, in, in the country that I come from, the United States, schools have become a bit of a battleground. They've become a bit of a battleground. And activists for different agendas have, have, have recognized that, and rightly so, because key, children are the key to the next generation. I've, uh, as I've grown up, I've grown up in, uh, amongst different cultures, and actually a, a number of you have as well, but I've noticed that there's two sort of extremes in terms of parenting your children in the Lord, if I can put it that way. On one extreme, I've seen parents who go, well, we, we, we don't want to influence our children at all. They have to make their own, their own choices. They're going to do what they're going to do, and we just sort of have to let them go, hands off. And on the other side, I've seen parents who, who, who they influence to the extreme. They control their parent, their, their children. They have to be, they're, the children are almost forced to be a Christian. Yeah. And to the side that says, ah, we can't influence our children, they have to make their own decision. Friends, someone is going to influence your children. Someone is going to influence your children. It should be you. It should be you. You can share your faith with them. You can go after their hearts. Like mothers are going after their children's upset hearts right now. But you, you can go after your children's hearts. Shepherd them. Yeah? Don't fall into what I, what I want to call behavioral transformation. They behave the right way, but you can go after their hearts. And on the other hand, on the other side, for those where you come from a culture where you, 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 you force your child to know Friends, that, that, only ends, that usually ends up in one of two places. The child either rejects outright the faith of the parents. I talked to a young man in the street this last week. Came from an a, he's, he's African background, but he wanted nothing to do with faith because it had been forced on him and he'd, been, he'd witnessed hypocrisy in it. One another, he'd completely rejected it. My heart broke for him. So they're either going to reject it or... They're going to end up as what I call a cultural Christian. They're going to, they're, they're going to have all of the, they're going to follow all of the, the, the traditions of Christianity. They might go to church. They might do all of these other things, but they don't actually know Jesus for themselves. Yeah. And friends, this is key. This is key. Friends, don't fear the world's, the, the sin's power and authority in your, in your role as a parent. Influence your child. Go after their hearts. But at the same time, each of us becomes responsible for what we believe. And so at some point, your child, usually 12 or 13, 
they start to become responsible for their own decision. And we've got parents who are further or, or, or along in this room. Uh, we've, we've got, Paul shared about it earlier, grandchildren who, who aren't walking with the Lord yet. We've got others who have children who aren't walking. That's not necessarily a reflection on how you parented. It might be, but it's not a one-to-one ratio. But children at some point decide what they're going to trust for themselves. And you do everything you can as a parent to influence, but at some point they choose as well. And they become responsible. And you need to let them do that. Give them opportunity to own that. One of the things we did in the summer was uh, Anita and myself and some others led worship at this youth event called Teen Street. And I'm committed to that kind of event because it gives young people an opportunity to come away and in a healthy environment start to own their faith for themselves or not. Yeah? But children have to own it. You can't force them into it and you can't do the hands-off approach because someone else is going to influence them as well. Can I suggest this to you? One of the easiest ways to start influencing your child in faith in the right way is to share your testimony with them. Yeah, we each have a. Te- if you're following Jesus, you have a testimony. What you were like before you met Jesus, how you met him, and how you changed. Have you shared your testimony with your children? Have you shared your testimony with your children? There's a, there's a right and a wrong time, and perhaps there are details that you can't. If you have, well done. Keep sharing what the Lord is continuing to do in your life with your children. Again, there's discernment in that, but keep being open with your, ch- with your child about your own modeling that relationship with Christ. Amram and Jochebed didn't fear Egypt's power, and that was Moses' spiritual heritage, and we're going to see that play out in his life as well. Look with me in verses 24 and 26 of Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 24, it says, by faith, this is the second stage of his life. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Could someone just look up uh, Exodus chapter 2 and verses 10 and 12 for me? Someone do that. Exodus chapter 2 and verses 10 and 12. Yep, Joe, go for it. 10 and 12 and 15. 10 to, sorry, 10 to 12 and then verse 15. So this second, second scene from Moses' life is that Moses chooses a side. 
and in his faith, he doesn't desire Egypt's success. And Joe read just a couple of verses from that story. But at some point, Moses goes out to see what had become of his people. He grew up in the palace as an Egyptian prince. And some, at some point, he, I don't know if it was through his mother's influence, he knew who he was. He knew the story of his people. He knew the promises. And he went out to see what had become of his people. And he sees one of his countrymen, a fellow Hebrew, being whipped, beaten by an Egyptian slave driver. And he chooses a side. You might think we need to talk about whether it was the right thing or the wrong thing. But the reality is he wanted to be identified with the people of God and not with the Egyptian anymore. And so he made a choice. He killed the Egyptian slave driver and hid his body and liberated his fellow Hebrew. Now, if you remember the rest of the story... That wasn't exactly well received by his fellow Hebrew people because the next day he goes out and sees two Hebrews fighting and he says, why are you fighting? Don't fight. You're on the same side. And they say, oh yeah, who are you to say, who are you to tell us what's right and wrong to be our leader? We know what you did. And Moses discovers that Pharaoh actually knows that he's killed the Egyptian slave driver and he runs away, flees to Midian. But he chooses a side. And Hebrews 11 says that he, he considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth and the treasures of Egypt. If you look at those verses, he actually refuses three things. It says in verse 24, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refuses the status that he could have had. He refuses the status, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, a prince. And choosing instead to be mistreated with the people of God. Rather than enjoying, that's verse 25, rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He rejects the pleasure of Egypt. And then lastly in verse 26 it says that he considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth of Egypt. So he rejects wealth, pleasure, and status. I've called those things success. Faith doesn't desire Egypt's success. You might think, well, I, I don't have much anyway. I mean, I, I we're just, you know, we're happy folks living in Wolverhampton, and I don't have great success or wealth or treasure. But friends, when, when you start living your life and you actually have adopted the world's definition of success, success is owning your own house, having a successful career, providing for your children so that they can have a good education, uh, having a good reputation in the community. None of those things are necessarily bad things, but they are the definition of the world's, of what the world looks at and says, that's a successful life. That's a life well lived. Jesus says, I have success, a reward for you in heaven that moth and rust can't destroy. A treasure. Yeah? Paul says, he lists all of his accomplishments. Paul was the most accomplished you could get as a Jew living in the time, just after the time of Jesus. He was educated, he, was, he had reputation, he had influence. And he looks at all of that and he says, it's trash compared to the overwhelming worth of knowing Jesus. That's a different definition of success. Moses had that definition of success. He knew that true success is investing in the next life. 
you'll notice that Joseph and Moses, we talked about Joseph last week. Joseph was, he came in as a foreigner. He wasn't born into it like Moses. But Joseph came in as a slave and rose through the ranks. And he stayed in Egypt. Whereas Moses was born in Egypt and eventually rejected it. But they had the same heart. They had the same heart. And if I can, if we look at that verse 26, he talks about that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth of Egypt. Would you just flip over in Hebrews chapter 13? Keep that, that, that phrase, the reproach of Christ, in your mind. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 12. 12 through 14. It says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people. He suffered outside the city of Jerusalem on the hill on Calvary in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. That's the reproach that he's talking about. The reproach that Christ endured being rejected outside the city. And in verse 14, it tells us what that heart is that Moses and Joseph share. For here we have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. And so friends, Joseph and Moses, even though one stayed in Egypt and one rejected the power of Egypt, they both had the same heart as Jesus, which is that they sought the city that is to come. We talked about this idea of city a few weeks ago, that for us... Some of us are not from this country, yeah? We, we have nationality, citizenships somewhere else. Margarita, it's so good to have you here. Could you translate for me? Where, where is your country of citizenship? Italia. You hold, do you hold Italian citizenship? Her passport. Where's your passport? Romania. Romania. But where do you live? Moldova. Where does she, but where does she live now? Italy. Italy. So she, you have a Moldovan passport, but you... Romanian. Oh, sorry, Romanian passport. Moldovan, Romanian, I live in Italy. Yes. But you have a, a Romanian passport. That's where your citizenship is. But you, she li, you live in Italy. Yes, and, and that's what this idea of seeking another city means, is that we live, it's as though we live in Italy, we live in the world, but our true home, our passport, is not for this world, but for a heavenly world, a new city in the next life. Did I explain it well? Yeah. <laughs> And, and Moses and Joseph, even though one stayed and one left, they had the same heart. They were seeking that heavenly city. Friends, I'm not, some of us might be called to reject certain aspects of life here in, in, on earth in the world. Some of us might be called to live in the midst of those things. And that's the Holy Spirit's work in your life. But we're called to have that same heart, to know beyond the shadow of a doubt where our heavenly home is. Moses, like Joseph, like Jesus, hundreds of years later, didn't desire Egypt's success. But they counted the reproach of Jesus to be worth more 
than any success, any treasure we could have here on earth. Jim Elliott, who was a martyr in Ecuador, he said, he had this wonderful phrase. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. I'm going to get it wrong. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So if you have something that you can lose, all the trappings of life here on earth, that's going to die. You can't take your money with you. You can't take your house with you. You can't take your reputation with you. You're going to lose all that stuff. And so Jim Elliott, who died as a martyr for Jesus amongst the Inca Indians, he said, I give up all that stuff and I'm not foolish because I'm actually gaining that which I can't lose. Eternal life, a reward in the next life. Friends, we need to be careful about applying the world's success to our Christian life. Sometimes we get trapped up in, ah, if I do all the right things, God's going to bless me and give me all. He, he might do. He might give you a, a nice house and a new car. And, and it, it, he often does do those things. But that's not success in God's eyes. Success is the people who we can bring with us speaking to them about Jesus, seeing them come to start to follow Jesus for themselves. Success is those long-term investments. What's your definition of success in your own life? We all implicitly have a definition of success. Are you living for, and we spend a lot of time, and we spend a lot of, we invest time in our, our homes, our families, our children's education, in, in saving for retirement, saving for retirement, that's a big one. I've put in my time and now I get to retire and I have a nice or maybe not so nice pension. Yeah, that's the world's definition of success. Not bad things, but if that's what we're living for, we've fallen into that's, that's the world's success. What's your definition of success? I was at a, with an organization called Operation Mobilization. Have any of you heard of George Verwer before? Um, and I heard George Verwer share this last week. And uh, he's 90. He's getting up there. Uh, and he still has more energy than I do. But he, he's still chasing hard after Jesus. And he said, I want to see, I'm still praying to see more workers and more finances come in to fund global mission and, and evangelism. And, he's, and I just, I look at him and I go, Lord, let that be me. I don't have that energy even at my age. But that, that sense of wherever you're at, retired, not retired, nearing retirement, in the middle of your friends, keep investing in the kingdom. Keep investing in the kingdom. Faith doesn't fear Egypt's power. It doesn't desire Egypt's success. It isn't swayed by Egypt's opinion. It isn't swayed by Egypt's opinion. Uh, read for me, someone read for me uh, Exodus chapter 10, verses 28 through 29. We're going to skip the other ones just so we can get through this. Exodus chapter 10, verses 28 to 29. Would someone read that for me? Paul, go ahead. And 29. Uh, Pharaoh said to Moses, Get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Mm. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. So Moses isn't swayed by Egypt's opinion. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, it says that he didn't fear Pharaoh's anger. 
So if you remember the story, we pick up Egypt. Sorry, Joe read it earlier. Moses, after he killed the Egyptian, he fled in fear from Egypt. And then he came, he met, sorry, before he came back, he met God, Yahweh, in the flaming bush. And God says to him, you're going to be my mouthpiece to Pharaoh to free Israel. And Moses keeps saying, I'm not good enough. I'm not good at speaking. No. And and he finally sort of flat out tells God, I don't want to do it. And it says God's anger burned against him. And then he brought Aaron, his brother. It says, Aaron will be your mouthpiece, but you're still going to be my prophet. And we see by the end of, this is the verse that Paul read, is at the end of the ten plagues. And Pharaoh's had enough. And he says to Moses, don't come in here again. And Moses has the gall to respond to him. As you say, you won't see me again. (laughs) Try imagine saying that to the king of England. As you say, you won't see me again. I could sign you to your judgment. Moses has come a long way. He was he used to be swayed by Egypt's opinion, but God is the God of second chances, and he gives him more opportunity. He sometimes kicking and screaming, he, the Lord drags him into it. But by the end, Moses doesn't fear Pharaoh's anger anymore. He doesn't fear Pharaoh's anger anymore. Friends, we live in an age when we suffer the, the pressure of the court of public opinion. I've discovered uh, coming here, and I sort of, I'm sort of I have some English heritage and a little bit of culture, but mostly I'm American and French and other stuff. But I've discovered that in England, a lot goes without saying. <laughs> it's just going to there's, we, we, there's a lot that's communicated about what you ought to do, about what's expected of you in society that isn't actually ever verbalized. There's, there's, there's just as much expectation in other countries, but it's more verbalized. I'm not saying that's good or bad. It is. But we feel that. And sometimes we need to put a finger on it and say, this is, a, this is a pressure for Christians. We see it in social media. We feel it through the news. We feel it through friends who don't know Jesus. There's an expectation about what it means to be a good person living in society. And sometimes we don't do things we ought because actually we know. We, we, it's the air we breathe of what ought I to do in this situation. It's not socially acceptable to share my faith here. It's not socially acceptable to, to offer to pray for someone. It's not, yeah, we, we, because we know it's, it's in us without actually having ever necessarily been communicated as such. Friends, we need to not be swayed by Egypt's opinion, by public opinion, by the pressures of our world because it stops us from being open about our faith. It stops us from living counterculturally where Jesus is calling us to do that. Can I suggest to you a, a solution to that? Because I think that we all suffer from that. Churches across, Eng- I talk about our country, but across the world, but in our country, churches suffer from that, caring too much about what public opinion is. Can I suggest to you that the solution to that is to grow closer to Jesus, is to enjoy him more. Because the closer you get with him, the more you enjoy him, the less you start to care about what everyone else thinks. Yeah? The closer you get to Jesus, 
the more free you start to go. Actually, and this is what Moses it says about Moses, that he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He knew that even though God is invisible, he sees. He sees. He knows. And so, friends, my encouragement for, from that is to keep figuring out how to enjoy Jesus. Enjoy being in his presence. Someone was telling me the other day that they've started experimenting with, with, with putting worship music on at, on at home and just starting to sing. And, and maybe you need to get down on your knees and maybe you're, you prostrate and maybe you're just, just close your eyes and your hands. Are, but, but just trying to express. And what, is, what does that look like? How do I connect with the Lord? How, where do you enjoy Jesus? Where have you enjoyed him this last week? Time with him. Because he's real, he's a person, we can know him. Yeah. Enjoying Jesus helps us to not be swayed by Egypt's opinion. Max, I don't even know Max Licato, he's an American author. He tells this story for children about a little character called Punchinello. And he, he, Punchinello is a little wooden creature who's, who's quite clumsy. And he lives in a whole race of, of wooden creatures. And he, but he's quite clumsy. And, and this, this, these people, I can't think what they're called, um, but, they, but they, when they do something good, they get a star stuck on them. And when you do something clumsy, you're, you're, not, you're not as smart, you get a dot. And Punchinello is full of dots because he tries to jump high like the others, but he trips. And he tries to be smart, but he, he gets the answers wrong. And so he gets dots every time. And finally, he meets one doll who doesn't have anything. No stars, no dots. And he says, how is it possible that you have no dots? And she says, well, I go and spend my time with Eli the carpenter who makes us. And none of, the, none of the stars or the dots stick to me. And so Punchinello goes and starts to spend time with Eli. And Eli tells him things like, I made you. I think you're fantastic. I love you. And as Punchinello starts to believe what Eli is saying to him, the stars and the dots start to fall off him. Yeah. And it's the same with us. When we start to spend time and enjoy Jesus and actually believe what he's saying about us, about the world, about the church, all of those, those opinions start to fall off us and we start to live as we ought. Last thing, faith doesn't fear Egypt's power. It doesn't desire Egypt's success. It isn't swayed by Egypt's opinion and it doesn't share Egypt's fate. And Hebrews 11 makes this clear that he's talking about the Passover. If you remember the Passover, there were 10 plagues, 10 plagues. Pharaoh hardened his heart and then God hardened it for him. It's kind of a scary process. And the last plague was that the angel of death was going to pass over all the houses in Egypt and take the firstborn child. It's going to kill the firstborn child was going to die. And God says to Israel, I'm going to spare you from that punishment, as he had spared them other things. But in this case, for the angel, what you need to do is take a lamb, and you're going to slaughter the lamb, and it, you're going to paint the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, sorry, on the, on the lintel, and then down the doorposts. And when the angel of death comes to your house and sees the blood of the lamb, it's there in place of the firstborn child, he will pass over the house. 
and your family will be spared. And so, by faith, Moses kept it. He believed that that, that the blood of that lamb would protect them from the angel of death. And friends, faith doesn't share Egypt's fate. And we have a wonderful picture of what Jesus did for us. That term, by faith Moses kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood. Hebrews uses that term sprinkled, that we're sprinkled with Jesus' blood. And so friends, it's the same for those who have faith in Jesus. We trust Jesus' blood, that Jesus' death actually was in place of our own death, so that when death comes for us, like the angel of death came for the firstborn in Egypt, when death comes for us, he passes over, and we no longer fear death. Now, just a quick clarification on what death is. There's different kinds of death. Death means separation. It means separation. So physical death is when your spirit is, or your soul is separated from your physical body. But there's another kind of death. There's spiritual death, which means separation from Jesus. Your soul is separated from Jesus. And remember, Jesus is the true source of life and light. And so for Israel, they were spared physical death by the blood of the Lamb and by Jesus, who is the perfect pure lamb were spared from that spiritual death. Yeah? And so now when we, when we die physically, we don't fear eternal separation from Jesus. We look forward to eternal life with him. But friends, Egypt, the world, this is where it gets personal because we look around at friends, neighbors, family who don't know Jesus, who haven't trusted his sacrifice, his blood covering them, their fate, they have a different destiny. Right now, the direction of their lives is headed towards life, eternal, eternity without Jesus. It doesn't have to stay that way. Repentance means you, you make a, a, half tur- a, semi, a half turn. You turn around and walk the opposite direction. And so our prayer, our hope, our desire for those around us who don't know Jesus is that they would not share the world's fate, Egypt's fate, but that they would repent and trust Jesus and what his blood has done for them. Alistair Begg, as we close. Alistair Begg, who's a a Scottish pastor of a church in Cleveland, Ohio, not too far from where I grew up. He has a wonderful story about this, how, how Jesus' blood, what, what it means to trust in Jesus' blood. And he, he tells, he imagines, you remember when Jesus died and there were the two thieves on either side of him. And the, and the one thief was, was harassing him and harassing him. And the other thief said, he said, yeah, I, I, you, you really are who you say you are. And Jesus says, I promise today you'll be with me in paradise. And so Alistair Begg tells the wonderful story. He imagines what happens when that thief gets to heaven. And he, he, he arrives at the, door, the gates of heaven, and the, the door attendant is there. We're imagining what heaven might be like. We don't know for sure. And he says, right, who are you? Why, sh- why, why should I let you in? And he says, do, 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 you know, do you know the Bible? 
No? Have you lived? Uh, and he can't figure out why he should let this chap in to heaven. And he calls his, uh, his overseeing attendant and he says, they, can't, they can't figure it out. They have no they can't figure out who he is and why he's there and why they should let him into heaven. And finally, the senior attendant says, on what basis are you here? Why? And, he, and, and, and the thief says, the chap on the, on the middle cross said I could come. The guy on the middle cross said I could come. Friends, if we get to heaven and we say, we say well, they say, why? It's a helpful question. Why should I let you into my heaven, God says. And if your answer is, I lived a good life. I believed all the right things. I took care of the poor and the sick and the needy. I, 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 I. If your sentence starts with I, you're wrong. It's all Jesus. That's what his blood, that's the picture of the Passover. He did everything. And so when we get to heaven, friends, the answer is, I know Jesus. The guy on the middle cross said I could come. He invited me. It's all about Jesus. It's not in our power that we can do anything. Friends, I don't know uh, where you're at this week. Do you fear the world's power? Do you crave success on the world's terms? Are you preoccupied with trying to please the world? Do you share Perhaps the world's fate this morning. You haven't decided whether you trust Jesus or not. In Jesus, you have resurrection power. You have a heavenly reward. You have the affirmation of a loving heavenly father. And you have victory over death.